Dr. Kwajo Karamantang is the founder of the Research Optimization Network and a critical care and palliative care physician. He's also the host of the Solving Healthcare podcast. He's also Canadian. So we discussed the Canadian healthcare system, which on its surface looks like a comprehensive, all-encompassing, federally administered single-payer system. Sound familiar? Kind of like what Medicare for All is supposed to be. We discuss why this isn't the case in Canada and get into some of the details about what isn't covered, how it's more of a provincial system, and what are the differences in some of the provinces. We discuss how the money flows through the system and how private insurance can actually play a role in some ancillary services. And true to the name of his podcast, at the end, we solve healthcare. Dr. Karamantang was born and raised in Edmonton, where he did his medical school at the University of Alberta. He and his wife then moved to Ottawa, where he did his internal medicine residency training at the University of Ottawa, followed by a two-year fellowship program in palliative care and critical care. He stayed after his training and is now an assistant professor in the Division of Palliative Care and Critical Care Medicine. He also has research positions with the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute and, I apologize for the pronunciation, Institut du Sauveur Montfort as a senior clinician investigator. His academic interests include the integration of palliative care in the intensive care unit, as well as health services research and cost evaluations. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Dr. Kwajo Kiarmintang, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Bradley, thank you for having me. <laughs> so Canadians seem to think that American ambulances are going to check your credit score before they're willing to take you to the hospital. And mm-hmm. on the other end, you've got Americans thinking that Canadians have, having a heart attack need to wait in a Soviet Cold War bread line to <laughs> get into the hospital. Right? Clearly, neither of these things are true, but this is how we view each other's systems. Yep. American, we've got multi-payer, private insurance with a little bit of government assistance. And Canadians, you've got this concept of single-payer. That being said, it's it's a bit more complicated or a lot more complicated than that. So we're, we're going to get into it. Mm-hmm. To start, how long has Canada been on single-payer and how did that system end up starting? Yeah. Um, great question, Bradley. It's so officially, this all started in 1968-ish. Um, and so it was put about by uh, Tommy Douglas uh, from Saskatchewan, so one of our Western Prairie Confer- um, provinces. And yeah, Canadians being Canadians, we wanted universal health care that was accessible, uh, complete, um, publicly run, and so with those principles, they, they produced uh, the universal health uh, care in the, in the mid, in the late 60s. And um, basically would fund, the federal government would fund provinces to say, you know, this is what our principles are. And you guys decide where their money needs to go. And, but like in the big picture has to adhere to some key principles. And so, the Canadian Health Act was produced in 1984, which kind of solidified the principles of what Canadian healthcare was all about. And so the key 
elements of that was that it was publicly run, that it was accessible, that it was comprehensive, comprehensive. It was universal and and portable. And so since then, that's been officially documented and it's a legal uh, document. And yeah, and since then, we've have been running a publicly at a universal single-payer system. Wow, since 1968. That, that yeah, that sounds like a really civilized place to live. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I got to tell you, Brad, it is a civilized place to live. Yeah. Because I got a lot of, it's like you said, like there's a worries that if you come in with a medical problem that you are going to wait forever for, for things to be addressed. And to be honest with you, there are some areas in medicine where you are waiting a long time. Like if you, depending on what province you're in, if you are waiting for a hip replacement, you might be waiting a long time. If you're waiting for any other orthopedic uh, elective procedure. But if you come in with anything urgent, okay, so whether that's you're having an MI, you're having trouble breathing, you need urgent surgery, like doesn't matter where you're from, doesn't matter what card you have in your wallet, you get treated the same and you get treated Urgently, you get treated with respect, and and that's key principles for Canadians, and and we abide by that. Well, and there are also, I would imagine, ways to kind of game the system, right? If you're an orthopedic surgeon and you and you've got a patient who you think might need a knee replacement, I'm sure there are ways to kind of put them in line so that it makes it seem like it's a six month wait, but in reality, it's really not that long of a wait because. They, they know the patients that are likely to need it and the patients that are likely to not. So you, you don't ultimately waiting, you don't end up waiting that long. Yeah, it's exactly as you put it. Like the, the, you could adjust a priority. Like if you think somebody needs a procedure sooner than later, you have that prerogative. And so it's like there aren't, I don't want to make it appear like there's millions of people suffering, waiting for some procedures to happen. But I think... What is consistent is that if something needs to be addressed sooner than later, it's addressed. If it's elective, it's elective. If 100%. it's urgent, it's urgent. Okay. Exactly. So is it is it really a federal system or is it more of a provincial system that utilizes federal funds? I think the latter like is a better way to put it. So literally the federal government gives payments to each province based on population, based on need, and the provinces decide how they're going to distribute funds. So, f- for example, uh, in Alberta, when I was still living there, there would be about, I think, eight or nine health authorities. And the government would give, the provincial government would give each money, uh, each health authority a, a pocket of money. And they decide whether that should be more focused on outpatient, inpatients, whatever, like community resources, like whatever they felt was of higher need. In Ontario now, they're just in the process of trying to establish a system similar to that. But every province is variable. But the principle, though, is that federal government gives money to the each province and they decide how it's allocated. So you mentioned it's based on population and it's based on need. How is need assessed? Is it based on yeah, utilization? Yeah. So once again, it's it depends on the province, but I could speak to Ontario because that's where I'm at right now. Part of the funding model for each hospital was based on, it used to be on based on need. Like if you're seeing more volume of hip replacements, then we're going to fund that. We're going to give you a certain amount of money, a certain amount of intensive care admissions. We'll give you a certain amount of money. Now they're using it on quality metrics. Like, so if you're... If you're meeting 
specific quality metrics within each sector in medicine, like within orthopedics, within general surgery, then they will uh, provide a certain amount. Uh, so basically, they're rewarding hospitals that are of higher quality. But this is something that's always changing in healthcare. Like I think Ontario now is is trying to go towards that Alberta model that I was uh, describing earlier, where there's a health authority. We're going to provide you with money in that health authority. And you as the health authority decide where you want to put your money and how you want to put your money into your area. But more regional control. I, I, you know, that that's, exactly. that happens in America in, in Medicaid. You have these private companies where the, if the patient qualifies for Medicaid, they can get their insurance through a managed Medicaid provider. So the provider or the the insurance company will get a lump sum per patient that they take care of, and they will decide how they're going to administer that. And that kind of takes the Mm -hmm. government out of the loop because, you know, I think government does some things well, but it's not the most efficient. The private industry tends to be more efficient. So it's a way to to capitalize on both of those strengths. Mm -hmm. So that's what it sounds like. You give more regional control, and now the federal government doesn't need to be involved in the minutia of what happens in that province or even within the region of that province. Exactly. And and this is obviously just my opinion. I do feel like it's probably a wiser approach, you know, like almost like a bottom-up approach where you, in your region, you know where the needs are. Like you might be a region that has more and now more elderly population, you might have a population that has, you know, more youth and having some more resources towards that specific patient population might make more sense. And so I, my bias personally is like, this is the way to go because you get so much variability in, in these approaches to how we fund healthcare. And, and in my humble opinion, Brad, like, the more government that gets involved, the more I find administrative positions are being involved and the, the more inefficient everything becomes. So I, I love the idea of it coming from like a bottom-up approach and being more regional. And I think what you're throwing down makes a lot of sense. I forgot what it's called. It's it's someone's law based uh, based on a um, some British ship captain where bureaucracy fills the space it's given. Like yeah. if you set if you set a meeting for two hours long, oh, that meeting will let Parkinson's. Nice, I'm impressed. Yeah, bam. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like if you set a meeting for two hours long, that meeting will last for two hours, even if you could get everything done in an hour. So oh, yeah, Parkinson's law. I, love I it. mean, we we talked a little bit off, off uh, pre-interview about some of our similarities, and I think one thing I must reinforce is efficiency. Like we're both busy people, so yeah, the Parkinson's. Law is, and I, you know, you've been in these medical meetings too. Oh, like God. they are the most. People just like in, to hear themselves talk. Exactly. Just, come on, I got stuff to do. Yeah. Got to see patients, got to yeah. see family, got so, got to solve healthcare. That's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> got to solve healthcare. That's what, we're, that's what we're trying to do here. So, so one, one attempt at uh, the American government to solve healthcare was uh, Obamacare. Right, the Affordable Care Act. And, and one aspect of the Affordable Care Act is that insurance needs to have these 10 essential benefits. Inpatient care, outpatient care, medications, emergency department, maternity and newborn, mental health and substance disorder, physical and rehabilitation services, labs and imaging. I'm not sure if I've named them all. I don't think that was 10, but, but you get the idea, right? All the, these different aspects of 
healthcare, if you're going to have insurance, it needs to cover all of them. Mm-hmm. So, but the Canadian healthcare system, right? It's it's single payer to some degree. Yes. But it hasn't covered all 10 of those things in their entirety, right? Because that would just be to expect to have all of that paid for in its entirety for every single person in your country, just the the costs would end up skyrocketing. So that's not how it works in Canada. Exactly. So what so does what is paid for? It's about 70 to 75% of healthcare related costs. So it's essential services. Actually, it's probably easier to say what's not covered. So typical allied health, like physiotherapy, occupational therapy, optometry is not covered. Drugs, unless, you, unless you're elderly in most provinces, aren't, aren't covered. So there's a good chunk of services that aren't covered within the healthcare system. And as, as you said, like we pay this, I, I would need to check a reference, but somewhere between 45 to 50%, I think, of our uh, GDP goes to, goes to healthcare-related expenditures. So we spend a lot. And yeah. that's my whole area of research, to be honest with you, is how we could be more efficient with our spending. But yeah, it is not complete. And so some argue, do should we be covering more? Like one of the hot topics in Alberta, or sorry, in, in Canada, um, we just had a, an election was pharmacare and having within the universal healthcare initiative to have drugs covered. And no party was really diving into details on how this would be approached, but it was certainly on the minds of Canadians of having more complete coverage of some of the medication. So, yeah, but you nailed it, Brad. Like, we're not, it's not, we're not covering 100% of healthcare's use. Are there private insurance companies that come in to fill the gaps? Like, you pay us this amount per year and you'll get this percent of your rehabilitation services or medications or long-term care or whatever it is that's not being covered, are, are there private insurance companies that are trying to fill those gaps? Yeah, 100%. So the I'm in a government town, capital of Canada, Ottawa here, and a lot of, for example, government employees have a very complete insurance packages where, you know, a large portion of medications, a large portion of Massage therapy, physiotherapy, optometry, all those have a could be covered. And usually there's limits, but there's that is absolutely true that there's private healthcare companies that supplement. Yeah. So it's so, not a single payer system. That that makes it it's single yeah, I guess it's single payer for essential services is yeah. the way I would look at it. Okay. But, but for the you know, the non-essential services like dental, for example, we didn't mention that as well. Yeah. Uh, you, we all have, most of us have insurance, separate insurance for that. Yeah, I've, I've been in this situation. I'm, at, I'm an ENT, so I'll, I'll have a patient that comes in with a neck abscess, right? So I get called by the emergency department to assess this patient. They've got a neck abscess. Well, where's the neck, neck abscess coming from? Well, it's coming from a, an infected tooth. So the mm-hmm. tooth needs to be pulled. Well, this patient doesn't have dental care. They have Medicaid, so their emergency department stay is going to be covered, but if we call a dentist to take out their tooth, not covered. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're kind of stuck having to pay out of pocket, even though they have, you know, they're, they're a certain percent 
below, or I think it's like 135% above the poverty line qualifies for, for Medicaid, right? So they're not coming in with much to pay for this dental care, but now they've got to pay for a dental extraction out of pocket. So it's uh, dent- dentistry is, I think, sometimes is frequently forgotten about in these insurance plans, but mm-hmm. it is it's sometimes critical. Yeah. And uh, I mean, we kind of touched about on this earlier about some of the myths of, you know, within Canada, everyone... It's or if you have a heart attack, you're gonna have to wait. But you know, one of the like a true common concern when we hear about some of the scenarios in the states is that if you, for example, and correct me if I'm wrong, okay, because I don't, you know, this is just from what I'm hearing from my colleagues is if you have, you know, minimal insurance and you come in with a problem, say you have a cancer related, a head and neck uh, malignancy, and you need. X medication to be able to to cover uh, or to go through chemo or to have adjuvant therapy, you might not have cover. Like if you don't have insurance, you you might not be able to afford treatment. And so what, I, what we often hear about is people having to do, you know, their second mortgage on their house just to afford most common cause of bankruptcy in America: yeah. medical bills. Absolutely. So like, so what you know the whole pre existing condition debate. Right. That's something that, that came out in the Affordable Care Act is that if you had head and neck cancer before the Affordable Care Act, you couldn't afford insurance. So what would need to happen? You'd need to pay for it out of pocket until your funds are so depleted that you would qualify for Medicaid. And then you'd go on Medicaid and then the government would pay for the rest. But meanwhile, you've you're you You just depleted your you just depleted your future. Funds. Right. Yeah. So so but now with the Affordable Care Act, you can now apply for private insurance. Mm-hmm. However, it's not on a rolling basis. You can't just apply for it right now. You mm. need to apply for it when it's available. And I can't remember if it's quarterly or once a year, but you're, you know, in that interim, you're either just going to have to wait for your cancer to progress, waiting for wow. insurance, or you're going to have to pay out of pocket until, until that happens and end up in that, in that similar scenario. So pre-existing conditions doesn't mean you can get insurance just when you need it. Oh, wait till you get pneumonia and then apply for insurance. No. You should, it just prevents you from when you make that decision to get healthcare, it can't, or, or health insurance, right? It's not the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, to get health insurance that, that they can't stop you from getting it, which can also make premiums go up for everybody else because now you have to pay for the possibility of someone with an expensive condition that's going to end up on your plan. And that's what insurance does. It spreads out the risk. Wow. So that risk needs to be spread out beforehand. But you're totally right. It can you can you can end up bankrupt from a, a condition, but you did have the ability to pay for insurance. The problem is that some people end up with plans frequently that they don't understand. Meaning, mm-hmm. like, yeah, I have a high deductible, and so I, I have low premiums, but I have a high deductible, which means that my monthly payments, if I don't go to the doctor, are low. But mm-hmm. if I do go to the doctor then it's, I'm going to have to pay out of pocket probably 100% until I meet my deductible. So it seems like I don't have health insurance because people think that it's going to cover everything. But really, it's, it's in a lot of ways, it's just for those disasters that you're referring to, where mm-hmm. if you didn't have it, you would end up bankrupt. Yeah. So those so- are some plans. Or you end up with a, a high premium plan and a low deductible. It just, you know, but you're, when you're choosing it, you, it's, it's hard to understand all the nuance of it. Yeah, because it sounds like there's a lot of nuance, you know, just to contrast that with us, it's, you know, there's some provinces that have, you pay a a small premium for your insurance, 
for like your provincial healthcare insurance, usually somewhere between, and once again, forgive me if this is mildly wrong, but it's usually between 50 to $400 a year kind of thing. But regardless whether you, if you didn't pay it, you still get treated. You might get a bill for, or the, the government pushes you to, to pay for your insurance um, premium, but you're still getting treatment. And I, I think when we hear stories like that, like I could speak for almost all Canadians, when we hear, you know, someone has to bankrupt their house in a time of need, when, you know, what they just need optimal care, it just breaks your heart. Especially, you know, we're, we're talking to clinicians here. We got in this game because we want to help people, not break people. You know what I'm saying? So it's, it's, it's tough to hear um, scenarios like that. But it doesn't mean that you, yeah, the, the, the American system is just, it's preposterous. Yeah, I had an interview a little while ago with an evolutionary biologist. And, and one thing that we, the whole theme was the human body just doesn't make sense. It's kind of cobbled together over time and things are built on other things. Like the fact that our hand has, is like a bunch of rocks like uh, mm. put together and then our fingers extend out of these like eight different bones. It, it doesn't make sense. And that's kind of what the American system is. It's not like it was built from the ground up. It, mm -hmm. it started kind of with, in World War II, the, because there was no workforce, there was caps on salaries. And so they, they started offering other benefits like pensions and health insurance. And that was the start of the American system. So it's based on, it's an employer-based system, which just if you're going to build it from the ground up, doesn't make sense. It doesn't mean that single payer is the way and the only mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. But I think you and I are on the same page and that we believe in universal coverage. So, mm -hmm. you know, so everyone has something so that stuff like this doesn't happen. And I think most Americans are on the same page with that, that mm -hmm. like healthcare is a right. You know, I'm of the belief that there is a role for the private sector and for individual payers, you know, for individual people, if you want to pay for more care. Mm -hmm. then, and you want to pay for faster care and you want to pay for, the, you know, great, have a way to get private money for those that can afford it to just inject more money into the system rather than just having it be single payer. Everybody gets the same because it's just, it's just not going to be as, as efficient. But that's oh, my I, personal, that's, that's actually what happens in, in I think, Germany. If you make less than 300% above the poverty line, you get health insurance. You just, you just have it. You don't mm -hmm. have to apply. I don't think you have to apply for it. You just have it. Mm -hmm. um, and above that, yeah, you have to pay for private insurance and there are a bunch of different systems out there and you choose which one that works for you and, and fine. So that's, that's my, that's my soapbox. And, and Brad, like, uh, honestly, it's a hot topic in Canada too, like privatization, you know, cause you bring up a lot of good points. Like it's not, it's not the most efficient system in the world. And like, like I said earlier, there are people on, that have long wait times for some elective procedures and there's people out there that want to be more functional and not wait 18 months or, uh, or a year for their hip to be done. And, and also so you're spending a ton. You're spending a ton. There's more efficient ways to spend the money. I mean, it's, it's, it's great that, that you have this system, but you know, American is, America is much more inefficient with the spending, but, but Canada also, you, you got person, like you said, I think it was 50% of GDP. Like that's yeah, just it's, a tremendous it's, it's amount. A, to, it's like, uh, yeah, it's, some. it's, a, it's high. And, and like, uh, and once again, this is my personal belief too. I actually legit feel like there's a role of privatization in, in the healthcare, even in Canada. And the worry is that, you know, one of the common worries that you hear mentioned in debates is having that re like resource drain where 
you know, the best surgeons, the best ENT surgeon is now just going to work in the private sector and, and, you know, not, not, and so it's going to be kind of like a two tier system where yeah. the rich get a better, better service. But, you know, there's like everything else, like you just got to be a little bit nuanced about it. Like say, if that ENT surgeon is only allowed to work 25% of their time or 50% of their time in the private sector, that will offset some of that, you know, uh, concern that the re, like the quality drain is is happening. And so I, I just think we got to be, we just got to think through it a little bit more and use, utilize, because we have the capacity. We have, like I can speak for the our orthopedic surgeons, like we have guys that are on their third, on their third fellowship. They got some of them even got PhDs because there's no work, right? And if you think about what's happening in North America throughout the world, we have an aging population. Baby boomers are getting into the height of resource utilization. There's tons of people that need work, like that need to have treatment, and it's just we don't have enough money to fund uh, ORs for 24 hours or for, uh, you know, overtime and so on. But if there was a private element to that where, you know, people that could afford it are willing to pay their, what, 20 to 25K to get their hip done earlier. Yeah. Wait times go down. And that money is going to be used to offset the cost for those who don't have that type of economic Yes. Exactly. So... I think there's. I think we're solving healthcare right now. Right solving now. healthcare right now. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I, I do. My, my bias is there's a there's a role. So we we got a little off the rails in that both you and I <laughs> we know how to solve healthcare if someone would just listen to us. Yeah. So, but there are some things that are done well in some provinces and maybe a little more poorly in another, how do the provinces differ in how they administer healthcare? And which province is your favorite? It's my favorite. <laughs> Are you going to get me in trouble? <laughs> um, so in terms of different provinces, we'll have a more regional approach. So t- uh, bottom up where, you know, they, they fund the region and region decides where the resources go. Some are not regionalized and uh, you know the the provincial government decides how much money a hospital is going to get based on either the volume based on quality um i i, I gotta go back to alberta like i i really they went away for a while from the the regionalized approach and i think it in some ways made care worse uh the function functionality of the province worse they've been not totally adverse to privatization. So you could get your an MRI, CT scan, you could get that done and, and pay for it privately. And they've adopted that quite early. The reimbursement for their physician services is, is, is I would say, more than appropriate. Um, so if, you, if, you, if I had to say one, I would, I would, I would, I would lean on Alberta and, uh, Sorry for my Ontario folks that are listening, but like I said, they're they're moving towards a more regionalized approach as well, and I, I'm optimistic that things will start to be more efficient and uh, and uh, and care will improve. Like we also, one of the things that I don't know if it's fair to talk about, but I'll do it anyway. One of the things that really irked me about how things were handled in Ontario was from physician pay perspective. They made some unilateral cuts. So some specialties 
for example, some cardiologists based on if they were a heavy diagnostic practice, they, they could have lost up to like 20% of their income from these unilateral cuts. And I, I got to tell you, I was not happy with this approach because, you know, we're, we're, this is a, clinic, a physician audience, but we hustle. We do what we need to do for our patients. We take the brunt of, you know, Dr. Google, of administrators, of uh unhappy patients we do our best to try and serve and then for the an organization to just unilaterally you know take the wheels out of you and, and and make these cuts it was it was upsetting for to to say the least and so that left a sour spot in a lot of clinicians for sure and things have gotten better in terms of now there's arbitration between our Ontario uh, Medical Association and and uh, the government. So the process is better. But when you do that, you know, like it's just it's just a, a big slap in the face. Like our specialty yeah. lost about about five percent. And and I'm all about you know if there's areas where it need to be tweaked because yeah there were some specialties that in some opinions would say is overpaid and and or the the fee schedule is outdated and. You know, I, I think that's fair, but it's got to be a discussion. It's got to be a by like both parties to to decide what's what's the best approach. But so that left a real, oh, that was upsetting. Yeah, and that happens. That happens in the states too, where an insurance company can just make this unilateral decision. And you know, if you're a big hospital system, then maybe you have some leverage. But then then you're leaving a lot of patients out in the lurch if you just decide. You know what? We're not taking your insurance anymore. So, you know, it gives the insurance company a lot of leverage to just make these heavy-handed decisions. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and there's very little recourse other than just not taking that insurance. And ultimately, in that situation, it's, it's the patients who suffer. So how does the money flow? Like, how is it that doctors get paid? So that you said, it, you know, in, in a lot of provinces, it's, it's regional. It's a bottom-up. You're given a, a lump sum. So, so... Is it is it your salary? Is it fee for service? Is it come some combination of the two? Uh, I'm glad you you uh, brought this up. So most provinces, it's a combination. It's a combination. So most provinces, regardless of whether it's mostly regional or not, it's actually going to be the province that decides a fee schedule, and it's agreed upon that every physician in the the province is going to be paid that same within that specialty, the same for the, um, based on the fee schedule. So most specialists are, 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 will be, will bill essentially the ministry of health or the government, the provincial government, and would be reimbursed based on the services they provide. Some province, uh, some specialties also have like an academic plan, which is mostly salary based. So, Basically, incentive to be able to teach residents because there's also um, a cost to that, right? Like if you're teaching residents, you're not as efficient, you're not as fast. So compared to the docs that are in the community that would be able to see more patients in a shorter period of time. So there's a lot of provinces and a lot of specialties have that option to go towards a more salaried approach. And some also have a hybrid where they get a salary. But for example, if you all their night calls or weekend calls might be billable. And so there is some flexibility in terms of how it's 
how it's uh, how physicians are paid. Certainly, in our in my situation in um, critical care, we are paid fee for service, and then my I also do palliative care, which that is being paid a salary, and so I, I get both sides of the equation. Interesting. What about the hospitals? How do they how do they get paid, or is it? The money flows from the region to the hospital, and the hospital is the one that pays the doctor. One thing I guess that's quite unique in Canada, like I am not a hospital employee. You know, uh, the hospital the hospital doesn't pay me jack. It's I bill the government, and the government pays me based on services I provided, based on this fee schedule. Okay, and then the, the hospital does the same thing. And so the hospital, so they will either get paid by, like, the most... Updated one that I know is our hospital will be paid based on quality metrics, on the ability to minimize, for example, part of the equation. It's not the whole equation. Be the volume of patients they see, but also are you meeting your quality metrics? Less, you know, mm-hmm. surgical infections, less uh, ventilators associated pneumonias, and so that enhances their their budget as well. So, yeah. So basically, physicians get paid by the government directly. Uh, hospitals get paid by the, the government or region. and uh, But certainly the docs aren't being paid by the hospital. Okay. Okay. Is, is there anything right now that's being debated in the government? Any, any hot topics? Or is it something that they're trying to stay away from because it's too it's almost too oh, sensitive to touch? Oh, man, there's a lot of like hot topics in general, like, or well, no healthcare, to, sorry, healthcare related yeah, topics yeah. that are being debated in the government. Yeah, no, there's lots. So there's where to start. So we mentioned pharmacare. There's the privatization that's still being debated, like having some level of privatization. There's medical assistance in dying, like, uh, you know, having more clear legislation in terms of who's eligible. What else is there? Oh, the cannabis legalization, like, ah, yeah. uh, you know, in terms of, you know, right now you could legally purchase cannabis, but how safe is it? Are we doing effective monitoring? Well, what, what, if you're, if you, if you consume and you drive, like what's the level that is okay and what's not okay? Uh, they Seems recently- like maybe figuring that out before legalizing would have been a good <laughs> idea. I got to tell, like, tell you. Throwing oh. a bunch of it in the wind and seeing what happens. I got to tell you, there's, there's been a bit of a shotgun approach with a couple of things, but one of them was the cannabis. They were eager to to get the, in my personal opinion, they were eager to get the revenue because it's obviously heavily lucrative if adopted yeah. appropriately. And then medical insistence in dying. I don't know what drove that one, but we... I would say we weren't 100% ready for that when it came out as well. Mm. But... Um, th- but uh, yeah, there is a bit of a, hey, we'll uh, figure this out as we go approach in some of these uh, some of these cons- issues. It was popular, so the politicians decided to pass it and just figured they would kick the can down the road for figuring out all the nuance that really makes it or breaks it. Yeah, I, yeah. That's, what it that's what it feels like. Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Just like America. Yeah. So... Tell us about your podcast, Solving Healthcare. My main question for you is, have you solved healthcare yet? And if not, what's taking so long? <laughs> I, love the, I love that question. So, so Brad, what, what's it stemmed from is like, 
I mentioned earlier that we, we have a research group, Resource Optimization Network, and we've been pretty productive over the last few years. And our, our area of interest is how to make healthcare more sustainable. How do we save money? How do we improve care? And honestly, we were doing these, what I would say, pretty great studies and nothing was changing at all. And I, I was telling myself, like, what are we, like, what are we doing? Like, what's the purpose of this if nothing's going to change? So then, you know, I'm a, a podcast enthusiast. And so uh, I was like, you know, maybe if we increase awareness and maybe, maybe this could start drumming up some noise. And so we decided to develop Solving Healthcare and, you know, we're about at the time of recording uh, about five months deep into it. And I got to tell you, Bradley, like I've, I've never, outside of like moments in medicine, but a, this has truly been a humbling experience because like, I do feel like we are solving healthcare and things are changing and things are improving. Um, I'll give some examples. Like um, we did an episode on overparenting and, and the lack of support for kids with anxiety, depression, and other mental health disorders. And, and like, for example, in Canada, we're talking about what's covered, what's not. If you wanted to see a, a child psychologist for services, that's a, about a $3,000 bill uh, for a proper assessment. And a lot of people can't afford that. And so we brought this issue up. And now one of the clinics in Ottawa is going to be providing free care for for kids that can't afford it, essentially. And so wow, like, I feel like that's such a great investment, right? Yeah. Like you provide child childhood mental health services and you're going to save yourself a ton. It's right. It's going to be decades down the road, but you're going to save yourself a ton down the road. That, and that it, seems like, like a, it's so, it's just intuitive, but you're right. You got to find the money somewhere to do that. And someone's got to have the political will to say, you know what, we're going to take money away from this and, and put it towards that. Exactly. And so by increasing the awareness, bringing it up and like I'm married to a psychologist and I had no idea with some of some of these issues. You know, I didn't know about the three thousand dollar bill that these families got to sort out or or maybe just not go to see a psychologist because of. And that discussion with Adrian, it was Dr. Adrian Matheson and talking about, as you put, if you invest in invest in these kids early, it could have such upstream positive impacts on their lives that you wouldn't believe it. You know, avoid long-term mental illness, avoid them being incarcerated, avoid them having drug addictions. And, and it just hits such a, I mean, you and I, we both have three boys and like, it's like, if we can't step up for our kids, what can we step up for? You know what I'm saying? And so like when, like when I heard about this initiative of having free care for the kids, I was like, this is what it's all about. This is why we're doing this. This is a small step. This is a little thing, but this I'm a I'm one person. I have a team now helping out with the podcast. So shout out to the team. Love you guys. <laughs> but this is me five months in and already having a footprint. And this to me, this is how we're solving. And this is just the beginning too, Bradley. Like we because of this similar episode, we did one on marginalized patient populations, like people that are uh, on the streets and the care that they need. You know, there's uh, one of our intensivists approached me saying, can we not start funding some kind of program to get, the, you know, these kids that are vulnerable 
into some program to try and, you know, give them some hope. And so like nothing is materialized yet, but we're having that discussion. We're having that um, dialogue. And, yeah, and that's how it starts. And it's how it starts. It can't, I, it can't happen without that dialogue. And I believe in my loins, I believe like things are going to get better. Well, where can people find it? Where can people find your podcast? Yeah, so solving healthcare, you, we're on, we're everywhere. We're uh, we're on we're on Apple, we're on Spotify, Stitcher, everywhere you find your podcasts, Costbox, wherever you or Google Play, you can follow us at Quadcast at on uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and uh, I we really appreciate uh, the listenership and those that are listening already. And I think there's also a link to it on your webpage, resourceoptimizationnetwork.com. Absolutely. That's a good place to find it too. And can I say one more thing, Brad? One more thing. Uh, sure. I, I want to make sure that your listeners realize how beautiful of a thing what you're doing is. Okay. We as clinicians and, and, and medical trainees, we don't get some of these finer uh, skills in medical school. It's very mentorship dependent. And if you don't have that kind of access to good mentors and, 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 and like some of the stuff, the content you're creating, we, we, people don't get that exposure. So I just want to commend you for the value of the show. I've, I've been, I'm a recent subscriber and so the content that you've been throwing down has been beautiful. And I think it's, it's a way uh, that we can become stronger. We can become more connected with our patients and, and their families. So like, good on you, my friend. I appreciate that. That, that really means a lot. That really warms, warms the cockles. It should, buddy. <laughs> it should. So I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. You're, uh, you got a lot of hats. The podcast, Resource <laughs> Optimization Network, Palliative Care, um, the ICU, Three Boys. Yep. You got a lot going on, so I, I, I really appreciate it. And it, it's been a lot of fun, a, a great conversation, and I appreciate the compliment there on the end. Oh, absolutely. It means a lot. Uh, thanks for reaching out, my friend. All right. Take care. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.